This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I am Mark Gerson, the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a biblical passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I'm delighted to be accompanied by my great friend, David Fox. David, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you, Mark. Delighted to be here. David is probably America's premier uh, transactional attorney who's advised on multinational M&A deals, financing deals, over 35 years, and the sum total of the deals David's advised on is hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. And to give an idea of how long I've known David, when I first met David, David, you, I don't know if you remember this, but you had just been named in some legal magazine, uh, 45 Under 45. Yeah, that was a long time ago, Mark. That was a long time ago. And, and, and now David's received uh, pretty much every conceivable award in his profession, in his service at both Skadden Arps and more recently, uh, Kirkland Ellis. And David grew up in Jerusalem, where uh, his father, Seymour Fox, was a rabbi and a renowned Jewish educator. And David, your father went to JTS in really the heyday with uh, Saul Lieberman and Abraham Joshua Heschel and people like that. Correct. And Saul was my godfather. I didn't know that. Saul was your godfather? Yeah. Wow. Did you study uh, Torah with your father on a regular basis? Not on a regular basis, but but we definitely did have discussions, and I was lucky that I had some very great teachers, um, actually in a secular high school that I went to in Israel. And in a secular high school, you learned biblical subjects? Yes. Great. Well, I'm excited to get into one of them today. And so the biblical passage that David picked to discuss is from 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and this is the story of David and Bathsheba. So, uh, David, would you like to just give uh, give some background to the story? Just tell everyone what happened so that uh, everyone has the context for when we begin the discussion. Sure. This is really one of the foundational stories of our nation, but it's packed into two to three pages. And it's an interesting story. It's, it's truly a monstrous story of deceit, adultery, and murder. And it's interesting that it is such a foundational story for us. It is uh, also a counterfactual engine, because you can imagine that without this story, which is really the genesis of King Solomon and many other things, our whole life, uh, lives as a nation would potentially have looked very different than it does. Who are the key players in this story? What is the cast of characters? There's King David, there's Achiva, who is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. There's Uriah the Hittite, who is one of King David's 37 hero warriors, one of the closest people to him. There's Yoav, who is David's, probably I call him the minister of defense. Uh, there's a prophet, Nathan. There's Bathsheba and David's son, who is unnamed. Uh, and then there are miscellaneous servants and messengers. So what really happened here? So David is sitting in Jerusalem, even though his whole army is fighting in Jordan. And even though a king typically is with his army, he spots Bathsheba bathing. I guess they live not far from each other, which makes sense if Uriah was one of his key hero warriors. And although he knows that she is married to one of his key warriors, Uriah, and by the way, let me pause here. Uriah means the light of God, but the Hittite 
or Hittite really sort of seems to indicate that he may not be Jewish or may not be an Israelite. Israelite. And he is, Uriah, is fighting in Jordan for King David, where King David is standing out in Jerusalem. And he sees Bathsheba, he sees that she's beautiful, bathing, and he sends for her. Those are the words. He sends for her. And then he has sex with her. Afterwards, she becomes pregnant, and she informs David through a messenger that she is pregnant. What David then does is a story of deceit, uh, really unreal. He brings Uriah, one of his key warriors, back to Jerusalem from the battlefield. And he is impliedly hoping that Uriah will have sex with his wife and create a cover story so that David will have no fingerprints with the adultery issues associated both for David and Bathsheba. And Uriah, out of soldierly and warrior honor, refuses to go along with the scheme, which he probably does not know. And even though David makes multiple attempts to get him to go home, and just remember, he could see Bathsheba when she was bathing. So his home and Bathsheba and Uriah's home are probably close to each other. Uriah refuses to go home. Now, for anybody who's been in the army, the notion of coming back from the battlefront and having a beautiful wife and not going to spend the night with her is astonishing. David makes multiple attempts, and Uriah refuses to go to his home. So that was David's plan A to cover up the story. So then he moves to plan B. And plan B is he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a letter, a letter to Yoav, his minister of defense. And the letter basically says, Yoav, please kill Uriah in the battlefield. Make sure he does. And just imagine this for a second. Uriah is going back to Jordan with this letter in his hand after he spent three days at King David's palace without going to his wife to be with her out of soldier of the honor. He's carrying his death warrant in his hand without knowing about it. As things happen, Uriah is killed. David gets notified of it. Bathsheba finds out and mourns. David weds her. I think that's his eighth wife. And their son is born. Their son is born. And then the prophet Nathan comes to David and presents a parable. And basically, uh, it's an interesting one, basically says to David, comes to him, doesn't mention this story, and says there's a traveler. Traveler comes to a town and wants to eat, needs to eat. And he goes to the rich man with many lambs and ewes, and and they want to feed the traveler, and they're supposed to feed the traveler. And the rich uh, man basically goes to the poor man, only has one lamb, who, who he apparently takes very good care of, feeds, sleeps with the lamb, and gives that one single lamb to the uh, traveler uh, and takes away from the poor man. Prophet Nathan says to David, well, what should we do in this situation? And King David gets angry and says, that man, the rich man, should be put to death and should pay multiple penalties, financial penalties. And Prophet Nathan turns to King David and said, that man is you. And David suddenly understands the monstrosity, or that's the implication of what he's done and begs for forgiveness. Basically, God, through Prophet Nathan, says to him, basically, your son will die, but you will not die. You will be forgiven, will not die. You will not die. But there are a whole series of other, other punishments that ensue later on having to do with the sword not leaving the house of David, uh, the death of his king Absalom, and the fact that his various wives and mistresses, there were many of them, had sexual relations with other people in public. So David uh, certainly gets the the punishment for his sin. Now, one of the many interesting things in this story is the fact that the king is open to being rebuked, which is not the typical way of kings. 
But all throughout the Torah, the value, in fact, the indispensability of rebuke is emphasized. In Leviticus, it says, rebuke, rebuke your fellow. Rebuke is used twice. Now, why do you think that the rebuke of David is so indirect? The rebuke is delivered through a parable, which is distinct from how later prophets did it when they just brought the rebuke straight at the Jewish people? I think that's a wonderful question. And you can ask, you know, there's a whole series of questions, uh, Mark, about what the meaning of the parable is well and who the various different people in the parable is are. One thing that's interesting, if you think about what really happened here, David knows everything that is going on in Uriah and maybe Bathsheba know nothing. So it's subterfuge and deceit. Nathan is doing something very similar to David. If you imagine for a second that David really doesn't know this is about him, then David is being, I wouldn't say he's being deceived like what he did to Uriah and Bathsheba, but he's definitely not knowing what's really going on. And in a way, that is a in-kind treatment of what David did. And if you think about the punishment that Nathan then describes what would happen to David, he says, what you have done, you've done in secret. What we will do will be in public. Having said that, Mark, the rebuke is very personal. It's just to David. So you ask yourself the question, does Bathsheba know about this? Does anyone else know about this? Uh, it's very hard to tell the answer to it. And again, Mark, I think there's serious questions who the different persona in this parable are and what David was really trying to do in his reaction. Now, as, as someone who has um, spent uh, a career doing the highest levels of negotiation, uh, what do you make of uh, Nathan's tactic in terms of how he delivers the message? Well, I, I, I think it's I think the, the, your first question of why he doesn't do it directly, in my opinion, is the most interesting question, because, you know, if you know everything that happened, why wouldn't you go to someone directly and just say you've done this? Right. And, and I think the thesis would be there, Mark, and I'm not sure. You know, I think there's so many unknowns about the story, but the thesis would be that Nathan wanted David to comprehend the monstrosity of what he did and to indict himself as a form of self-knowledge as opposed to developing the defensiveness that could be developed when someone is confronted directly. Interesting. So so Nathan's tactic was to get David to indict himself, which was more powerful than just being criticized. Potentially more powerful than just being criticized. And he also gave himself his own punishment here, which, which God did not follow. You know, his punishment was that he should die, and God said, no, you will not die. Now, you, you made a very, another very interesting point about um, Uriah the Hittite. What, what, again, did you say Uriah meant in, in, uh, in Hebrew? Uriah means the light of God. And, you know, if you think about this person, whether he was Jewish or an Israelite or not, he is pure of heart. He's an unknowing lamb, pure of heart. If you think of every single thing he's done here and the fact that he's one of David's 37 hero warriors. So we have this hero who is uh, a Gentile and who's literally the light of God. And it just, uh, it's remarkable that the genuine hero of the story seems to be Uriah. And he's a Gentile. And, you know, there are six times in the Torah where the term uh, Baruch Hashem, which is the, the greeting of a Jew, blessed be he, is made. And each of those six times is made by a Gentile. Noah, Malkitzedek, Abimelech, Eliezer, Laban, and Jethro. All Gentiles are the only people who say Baruch Hashem. And here, I just learned from you, we have another example of a Gentile who's the hero and who has so much to teach us Jews in this quintessential Jewish story. 
Yes, I agree with that. Although I, I will tell you, you know, the question of whether Uriah is a Gentile or not, I think could be up for debate. The fact that he's described as the type doesn't mean he is and not Israel, because he is married to a woman who is definitely an Israelite, and you see her parents' name listed there. So it could be that he just lived with the Hittites. It could be he really was Hittite. So I think, you know, the name is, the Uriah name is, is, um, is, throws you off a bit here. But when it says the Hittite, wouldn't that imply that he is a Hittite? Uh, it would, although I think you could also have an interpretation that he was living uh, or his family came from an area that was controlled by the Hittites. And you sometimes see that type of uh, attribution. But I, I, I think, you know, the, the contrast between his first name and the fact that he's called the Hittite is very noticeable. How do you interpret it? Do you interpret him as being um, a Hittite or as a Jew who lived in a region controlled by Hittites? I I I I, uh, I don't know. I think just the contrast there, Uriah Hittite, is, and you know, if you go back on David, he, David has had many wives who were not uh, Israelites, uh, you know, in the period before before Bathsheba. So uh, I don't know the answer to that. Let me ask you a couple questions based upon your service. You, you were a soldier in the IDF. You were you were in the military. You were in the army. I was. Now you made a very interesting point about how. David is basically home alone, relaxing, while his men are fighting a fierce battle not too far from him. How, why is the great general, the legendary General David, sitting at home relaxing, literally just admiring the beauty of women across the way while his soldiers are fighting for their lives in his kingdom? How do we understand generalship from that? Uh, it is, uh, I think, that and a couple of other related questions are key questions coming out of this story because this is not a good story about David on any level. And and then you see our whole nation, foundation of our nation, the leadership of our nation. When we talk about our hero, it is always King David. And by the way, not only our religion, also our, the Christian religion. Sure. And you say to yourself, how could that be? With a story that is, I started off by saying monstrous, and I really believe that a general who stays home, who takes the wife of uh, one of his key soldiers, who deceives the soldier multiple times, who murders the soldier and has the soldier carry his own death warrant. And, and by the way, the end of the story is he goes to conquer, actually technically formally conquer the, the town after it's in effect been defeated. Because Yoav says, then why don't you come and take glory? conquering that city, the same city that was fighting when he was at home and that he sent Uriah to, to, to be killed at. Uh, and David does that. Uh, he goes just for the glory at the end of the story. Now, do you think Yoav deserves some blame? I mean, Yoav is David's nephew, and Yoav knows everything that's going on. So while you said before that Basheva may not have known some things, Uriah may or may not have known some things, Yoav knows everything. He's in a position to rebuke his uncle. We know his uncle is open to being rebuked because of how he accepts Nathan's, albeit elliptical, rebuke. What do you make of the fact that Yoav just goes along and enables what you rightly call this monstrosity to happen? Well, we don't know exactly what Yoav knows. It's clear that he knows some things that other people who are part of the cast of characters here do not know. But we don't know everything that he knows. But, you know, as you know, Later on, a couple of chapters later on, David, in effect, tells his son Solomon to kill Yoav. 
Now, he doesn't say that Yoav should be killed because of what happened here. But if you think about it, Yoav knows a couple of things on, about David that are very uncomfortable for David. He knows that David killed Uriah and in a cover-up killed him. He knows that David was called to, to conquer Rabat Amon, Jordan, uh, without actually having participated in the battle and just being brought at the end for glory. Well, and, and he, he also knows that David killed Uriah to cover up for having sex with his wife. That notion that he did it for that reason does not come through in the story. It could very well be that that's the case. But he does know that, uh, um, and I suspect you're right, uh, but, but that's not stated explicitly. But he does know that David uh, instructed that Uriah be killed and that it be David. Right. Um, yes. And he also tells uh, Yoav exactly what to tell the other soldiers when Uriah presumably dies, which he does. Yeah. But by the way, I mean, if you, if you want to go to talk about Yoav a little more, I mean, Yoav is killed ostensibly later on because he killed Avner, uh, who became, who was an adversary of David, but ultimately became his ally. And it could be, when you read the story of Yoav and Avner, that David actually wanted Yoav to kill Avner, but, kill Avner, but did not want his fingerprints on it, and pretended that he didn't know about it. And that's sort of like uh, the way the story comes off when, when you hear the story about Yoav and Avner, which is a couple of chapters later. But, you know, you have this constant uh, theme with David of, um, of dissembling and really being dishonest and, and engaged in subterfuge. Now, getting back to um, Uriah, so um, Uriah is called back from the front, and and as you said, he's 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 fighting, and we know he has this absolutely beautiful wife. He's not only given the opportunity; he's given the command to go have sex with his beautiful wife, and he refuses it. Now, there are a couple reasons suggested. One is that he thought it would be a disloyal act while his men were fighting to him for him to be making love to a beautiful woman. The other is that there was a notion at the time that during a battle, having sex would uh, diminish one's fighting ability. Which or both of those make sense to you? The former. I think people have struggled to explain away what really happened here. You know, there's another explanation in some of, uh, I'd say, the learning, the Jewish learning after this, which says that when soldiers went to war, they signed an advance uh, divorce writ. Right. So, you know, when David had sex with Bathsheba, he wasn't really she wasn't really married to Uriah. And those are all not, in my judgment, not serious positions. The serious position is exactly what the text says: is that I am not going to go to be with my wife when the soldiers are on the field. And if I had to guess, that's something that Gaul dated, not only because his plan A cover-up didn't work, but it probably galled him because the beginning of the story is David is sitting in Jerusalem when all the kings go to war. That's what the text says, when all the kings go to war. And when his whole army was fighting in Jordan, and he's stacking at home. And then one of his men comes home, he gives him the opportunity to go to his wife, in effect, to behave in a similar way to the way David was behaving by staying in Jerusalem. And he refuses, and he refuses out of the type of honor that David should have had in the first place. So why do people make mistakes like this? So here you have King David, who has access to any and every woman, presumably, in the kingdom. And he concocts this completely lunatic scheme lunatic and evil scheme 
to commit adultery with Bathsheba, to sentence her entirely lovely husband to death, and suffers horrible and predictably horrible consequences. Why would such a smart guy like David make such a stupid mistake? Well, it's uh, power, temptation, and character. He had the power, he had the temptation, and he didn't have the character with, to withstand it. You know, if you go back to the history of David, there are a lot of issues like that with him. And I think the question we need to be asking ourselves is really twofold. Why do we, the Jewish people, admire him and put him on a pedestal the way we do? And I think that's, that's a complicated question. And then B, given all these characters, serious flaws that if, if this was happening today, you know how we judge this type of person. Sure. Why does the narrator of the Bible, whoever that narrator is, present them this way? Those are two separate questions. But to me, those are the two biggest questions coming out of this. Great questions. Now, um, in your career as, as an attorney advising C- CEOs, prime ministers, basically positions of power all over the world. Have you seen people make mistakes like this? I mean, mistakes like this, and that David's son, King Solomon, later defined wisdom as the ability to see the consequences of your action. It wouldn't have been so hard for David to see the consequences of his actions, but he didn't. And it wasn't like he made one mistake. He, He slipped, literally or figuratively. This mistake, like a lot of mistakes, was cumulative. He had to think for a decent amount of time about, should I pull this off and then pull it off and then had to do lots of things really in order only to satisfy an evening's worth of lust? So, Mark, that is actually a wonderful question that I had not thought about. And so, first of all, I'd say in terms of people with immense power, whether in the political system, the military world, or the business world, I think we see, and this I've seen multiple times, a feeling you'd want to say invincibility, but I call it invisibility. And it actually ties into the story. People don't believe when they're sitting at the top of a pyramid that people can see what's really going on and what's going on inside them. And I think that's what happened with David here. He had the power, he had the temptation, and he felt invisible, where he could do all these things without being caught. And I don't think you all knew all of this. I think you all knew some pieces of this. Maybe he guessed this or something. But there was one someone who knew what was really going on. I think that's really the, the thrust of the story, which is God through the prophet Nathan. He could see everything. So he took away that invisibility that you have with people with power who believe that they can use their power, succumb to temptation, and will never be called to task for it, whether you're talking about a Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer in our days, or whether you're talking about a Richard Nixon or whoever it is. That feeling of invisibility, which God took away from David, is, I think, one of the key drivers. So the irony is that these people who are actually the most visible through the course of their their actions create all kinds of victims and witnesses, thus making themselves completely visible, somehow think that because of their power, they're invisible. Correct. That's my, that's my experience, Mark. Is it easy to counsel these people and to tell them you're actually crazy, no matter how smart you are, no matter how powerful you are, you're crazy because you're not invisible, you are completely visible? Well, maybe that's the answer as to why uh, Prophet Nathan used the parable because that might be the only way to get through, because you're right, it's not always easy to explain that to someone who feels they have ultimate power. 
Hey, well, David, thank you for such a fascinating discussion and 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 really just uh, leaving me wanting to learn so much more about this uh, incredible story, particularly as you said, um, how and why uh, King David, who's so massively flawed, is is the the Jewish hero and and I guess your namesake. David, just one final question. In Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir, he tells the story of running into somebody with whom he served in the war. This man, he said, had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So he said to this man, upon running into him again, in all your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, the two things are, one, that everyone is much less happy than they seem, and two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So David, in all your years, as a transactional attorney advising CEOs, partners at major investment firms, prime ministers, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? The two things I probably have learned, not only from my uh, professional career, but also from my life, Mark, really are not lessons that you would learn from the story of David and Uriah and Bathsheba. And some of them actually go in the opposite direction. But I think the two main lessons that... um, I would uh, describe would be number one, that the trust is better than not the trust. Trust engenders different behavior from other people. And if you do not trust, there are many experiences in life that you are not able to experience. Whereas if you trust, you get a richness that is not available otherwise. Obviously you could say to me, well, if Uriah did not trust David the way he did, he would be alive, and that is a very valid uh, point. But uh, that is my lesson number one. And my lesson number two is, and this does have some relationship to the story of David Uya, is small mistakes beget larger mistakes. Now, I don't really think it's David and Uya because I think what David's character drove had nothing to do with small mistakes becoming big mistakes. But there are situations where small mistakes you see a beautiful woman having a bath and you desire her, how do you stop yourself from letting that turn itself into a big mistake? And that is a a problem that all of us experience. We have a small mistake and we don't stop ourselves. It turns into a larger mistake, into a larger mistake. So character values and being able to say to yourself, I made a mistake, let me not make it into a larger mistake, is my second lesson. So those are my two approaches, two mistakes, that two lessons that I would articulate, Mark. Very interesting. So you talked about trust and how you should go through life trusting people rather than not trusting people. And I think that presumes that whether you go through life trusting or not trusting, you will get screwed the same number of times or the same percentage of times. That is 100% right, Mark. And that is the premise And, you know, I'm not articulating being uh, stupid about life, but it's an attitude. And I agree with what you just said completely, Mark. That's actually right in the Parsha where it says, uh, judge every person righteously, to which Rashi and I think every commentator said, what that really means is give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, yeah. If somebody has it all earned your your trust or your respect, just give it to them. You may be wrong, but for, I think, the reasons that you said, uh, just give it to them. Now, when people make small mistakes that lead to larger mistakes, do they realize that they're on a slippery slope? Or what's the psychology with the person making the mistake? Well, I think they're different people, Mark. I think many, many people make a small mistake and are embarrassed. And shame is such a big factor in our life. It's much larger than most people imagine. 
and they don't want to admit the mistake to themselves or to others. So they have to take additional actions to deal with it. And being able to stop yourself and be comfortable with the fact that, wow, I've made a mistake here, let me not compound it, is a very critical component. There are other people who are just deeply flawed people who make a mistake and don't really care that they made a mistake. They just don't want to be caught and they make additional mistakes and additional mistakes. And, you know, Mark, in this world, sometimes they never get caught, but most of the time they do. And, you know, we hope in this world as we live that we have values that are not just related to being caught, but have to do with who we are and acknowledge the fact that we can make mistakes, but uh, it's a mistake. It's not who we are. Right. Well, David, uh, thank you as ever for your participation and for your wisdom, which I know I've benefited so much in the last, I think, 15, no, 17 years and, uh, and so many others have as well. So thank you. Thank you, Mark. You're a very special person. You are-